In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion, and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the earth, and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. And suddenly another beast, a second, like a bear, it was raised up on one side, and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and there was another, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up amongst them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there, in this horn, were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words." I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened." I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning fl flame. Excuse me. As for the rest of the beast, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. I came near to the one whose who stood by and asked him the truth of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Those great beasts, which are four, are four kings which arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Then I wished to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured, broken pieces, and trampled the residue with its feet, and the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn which came up, before which three fell, namely, that horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints, and prevailing against them, until the Ancient of Days came, and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High, and a time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Thus he said, The fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all other kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, trample it, and break it in pieces." The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the first ones, and shall subdue three kings. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and a half a time. But the court shall be seated, and they shall take away his dominion, to consume and destroy it forever. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatest of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, 
and all dominions shall serve and obey him. This is the end of the account. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me, and my countenance changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we just come before you this morning in awe. Father, in, in awe of your holiness, in awe of your compassion for those who are sinners. Father, I thank you this morning, as we read the text this morning, that you hold the future. And Father, we have certainty of our destination for those that have trusted in your Son, who shed his blood on the cross. Father, be with Pastor Chris this morning as he delivers the text. Lord, use him. Melt our hearts to your word. In your name I pray. Amen. Good morning. We've had great worship and a great passage to delve into. But before we do that, I want to ask you, uh, how many of you this past week, during the week at some point, thought, wow, the world is getting more stable than ever? <laughs> how many of you thought, you know, I've never felt more secure about our future than ever before? Probably you thought the world stage seems to be more unstable and more unsafe than ever before. Would you agree? Vladimir Putin is a powerful, strong man that is not afraid to flex his military muscle and devour neighboring countries like Ukraine. Putin's powerful influence may have even reached into the cyberspace of American politics. Putin's reach has definitely extended into the Middle East and is a major factor in securing the power of Syria's Assad. And then Assad's brutal dictatorship has left Syria desolate and has resulted in a refugee crisis of 12 million rushing into Europe, creating a total European crisis. Both the president and the supreme leader of Iran are hell-bent on developing and deploying nuclear weapons in an effort to wipe, off, wipe out the state of Israel off the face of the earth. Kim Jong-un, the chairman of the Workers' Party of Korea and supreme leader of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, commonly known as North Korea, is testing the patience of Western powers by firing missiles closer and closer to Japan and threatening the people of South Korea. And that's not even refer we haven't even mentioned the leaders of ISIS are relentless in their bloody and merciless effort to spread radical Islamic terrorism across the entire globe. And here in our own country, there's an increasingly hostile culture war over the sole liberty of our democratic republic. We have leaders in both political parties whose pride is unmitigated, appalling, and frightening in its refusal to recognize the sovereignty of the Most High God. And in the midst of all this, one thing is crystal clear. God's people, His saints that Dane just read about, his set-apart ones are increasingly being persecuted and martyred now more than ever before in history. Though not redeemed, the nation-state of Israel is surrounded by enemies who want to push it into the sea and wipe it off the face of the earth. The church of Jesus Christ and believers from every tribe, nation, and tongue that we sang about in our praise have been, are being martyred on a daily basis, and local churches are being threatened by police states and by judges and lawmakers right here in our own country. The statistics that have been compiled for last year by the Center for the Study of Global Christianity at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary tells us that Christians continue to be the most persecuted believers in the world with their estimate of 90,000 followers martyred last year. That's one every six minutes. That is at least seven in the time span of this message. We may get more in. While other Organizations may list this number more conservatively. Everyone agrees with the Human Rights Watchdog Release International 
that Christian persecution will increase in 2017. And we need to remember that death rate is just, it may be the ultimate in persecution, but this doesn't include displaced persons, attacked, abuse, and facing hardship every day because of their faith. So, how you doing this morning? Huh? How you doing? Are you encouraged yet? Probably not. But you know what? That's okay. Did you see verse 28 that Dane read? At this point, the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me, and my face grew pale. You know, I think sometimes maybe we as Christians in America need to have a little more fear and a little more paleness of face. So, where, what are we going to do? What, what, what do we do this? This is the last message in the Thriving in Babylon series, as Pastor Bruce mentioned. And it's pretty clear that we need to do more than just survive. We need to thrive like Daniel and his three friends did. So where are we now in chapter 7 in the historical and biblical context? I try to give you the cultural present-day context and let you see that indeed there are devouring monsters, the, the bear of Russia, the dragon of China, the, uh, the eagle of America. These ideas are still relevant today. But where are we in the biblical context? Well, look at Daniel 7.1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary. So first of all, we see there's another dream. Literally, dreams and visions, exact same words used for Nebuchadnezzar's two dreams. We also see who it is. It's Daniel, who knows his God and is one of the faithful people, a saint, a set-apart one. But this, what's unique is this is the first dream given directly to a believer. And this is the last chapter that's written in Aramaic, which means it's a message for Gentiles and for unbelievers, those who don't know God, and yet it's a specific revelation to the people who know their God. When did it occur? The first year of Belshazzar's proud and perverse rule over God's people. Why is that significant? Because this falls between chapters 4 and 5, and we're here in chapter 7, just hearing about it. Now that causes any good Berean student to say, why is this placed here? And I would say to you, the reason it's placed here is to tell us an important principle that we've repeated in this series about thriving in Babylon, and it's this. Thriving in the last days has as much to do with knowing who your God is as it does with the personal decisions we make. If you've seen in this, in this uh, uh, the, these least first seven chapters, there is this alternation of decisions and then dreams. Decisions and then dreams. And I have that laid out for you. I wish I could explore that with you, but I want you to say this. There's personal decisions, but the dreams always focus on who God is. In chapter 2, he is the God who is large and in charge of history's destiny. In chapter 4, he's the God who is large and in charge, but has long-suffering with proud, monstrous rulers. In chapter 5, he's large and in charge, but he exercises swift judgment on the proud who refuse to humble themselves. And here in Daniel, he is again the God who will avenge his people in the end. And I love Daniel 11.32 because I think it's key to this book and why you see this alteration, this pattern. By smooth words, he will turn the god to godliness those who act wickedly toward the covenant. But the people who know their God will display strength and take action. The key is knowing our God. So what are we to learn from this chapter? Well, this chapter is an amazing chapter and deserves at least four sermons, I believe. We'll try to do it in one. John Walvoord, great biblical scholar, calls this chapter the most comprehensive, detailed prophecy of future events to be found anywhere in the Old Testament. 
Daniel traces the, four, the course of four great world empires, namely Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, concluding in the climax of world history in the second coming of Jesus Christ and the inauguration of the eternal kingdom of God, represented as the fifth and final kingdom, which is from heaven. Conservative interpreters, he says, are agreed that this is genuine prophecy, that it's futuristic, that it's related to the future events from Daniel's point of view, and that it culminates in the kingdom which Christ brings, a kingdom that we have just sang about in our worship. In other words, this is one of the most important chapters in, in Daniel and in the entire Bible. And to fully understand it, you must trace its truth through the rest of Daniel, the rest of the Old Testament, and particularly the New Testament, and most of all, the book of Re Revelation. But that ain't happening this morning. And for some of you, that's good news. Some of you might think that's bad news. But it ain't happening. So what can we cover this morning? Well, here's what we're going to focus on. We're going to focus on this chapter, more or less. And we're going to look, and I want you to think this in your mind, because this is what's focused on in the chapter. See as God sees to thrive in the last days. If you're going to be thriving and not just surviving, you must see as God sees. In the New American Standard, in throughout this chapter, through the New American Standard translation, nine times it says looking. Eight times he kept looking. And I've recorded that for you. He kept looking. He kept looking. He kept looking. And after a while, you start getting the idea. He what? He kept looking. He kept looking. And then it says at the very end, he kept looking until. You see, if we're going to thrive in the last days, we've got to see as God sees. So this morning, I want you to see four things. We need to be wise, and we need to see these four things from God's perspective. It's going to move us through the chapter, and we're going to move fast. Are you strapped in and ready to go? All right, have your Bibles open and on. Number one. If we're going to thrive, we need to see the advance of world history for what it really is. We need to see the advance of world history for what it really is. I've included the, the, the text, the verses, the passages in your notes. You've got to go home this week. You've got to study this out. I can't give it all to you. I can't reference it all. But it's verses 2 through 8, and the interpretation is given in 15 through 18. And what we see is the advance of history from God's perspective rather than man's. And so I've got a, a graphic up here that shows you the similarities and the differences between Daniel's dream in chapter 7 and Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2. And so you can go back on our website, you can download, stream, get the notes of that message from Daniel 2. But for present purposes, you can see the overlap. But the first thing you see is from man's perspective, history is glorious. It's, it, man is glorified. Man is large and in charge. From God's perspective, what does he say? You have distorted the image of God in man, and you are wild, ravenous beasts. Pretty big difference, right? Pretty big difference. So here's are the similarities. When we think about these two dreams and you compare them, both these men had dreams and visions while lying in their beds. Both were scared and alarmed by what they saw and what God revealed. Both needed divine wisdom to understand what God was revealing. And both saw a progression of four kingdoms ending with the climactic destruction by the kingdom of God. But there are differences between these two dreams. First of all, God didn't reveal the meaning directly to Nebuchadnezzar. Why? Because he didn't know his God. He's an unbeliever. God doesn't bypass his word and his messengers to talk to unbelievers. He'll give them dreams and visions to get their attention, but he brings a Daniel or a Danielette. Is that right? Or a Dana. A Dana. To interpret that dream. Whereas Daniel knew his God, and Daniel revealed, uh, God was willing to reveal directly to his people the revelation. Now, Daniel still needed help. He needed angelic and divine wisdom 
It wasn't in ourselves, it was in his God. Also, after his dreams, Nebuchadnezzar made big public proclamations. Daniel, on the other hand, as a prophet of God, writes his down as inspired scripture and does not immediately say it publicly. Remember, this happened between chapters 4 and 5, 14 years earlier. And so he reveals it according to God's timing, not for human promotion. The third difference is the four kingdoms in Nebuchadnezzar's dream appeared as one big glorious image of a man. And a huge rock came down, very impersonal rock came down and became a mountain to destroy it. But in this dream, it's not a glorious man, it's ravenous, scary beast. This isn't PG-13, this is R-rated, horrible, violent, scary stuff. That's how God views human rulers. And instead of an impersonal rock that comes down and builds God's kingdom, it's one like a son of man. So we're looking in Daniel 2, it's about kingdoms. In Daniel 7, it's about human rulers and a man who is like a son of man. So let's look at these very briefly, these four brutal beasts. So you have there, uh, we've got on the screen, these four wild animals. Uh, four Gentile rulers in their global empires. And as you look at verses 2 and 3, I just want to say that there, in, his, in Daniel's dream, there's four winds that stir up these wild beasts. That is an image in the Old Testament of the sovereignty of God working to bring rulers up and bring them down. There's nothing that happened this past week that caught God, God off guard. Amen? And there's nothing that's going to take place in the weeks and years to come that God's sovereignty isn't in control of. Also, he's stirring the great sea. These monsters come out of the seas. Again, in Scripture, throughout the Old Testament, the sea and the new, the sea represents depraved humanity. The chaos and the curse of a world that does not know their God. And so these rulers are coming up, they're Gentile rulers, they're coming out of the chaotic mess of human depravity. And the four great beasts are particularly human rulers. And as you look at the first beast, it's a lion that had the wings of an eagle. This matches Nebuchadnezzar and the head of gold in Daniel 2. All over Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon, there were winged lions on all the walls and as a means of protection. And this lion's wings are plucked, and then it's lifted up from the ground and made to stand like a man. A perfect image of Daniel 4 and the humbling of this proud man, right? And how God then gave him a more... He became more like a true human being because he humbled himself before the Most High God. Then we move into the second beast, resembles a bear raised up on one side, you know, like a hunchback bear with three ribs it's chomping on. It loves barbecue. And he's chomping on these ribs, and God says, God says, go and devour more flesh, conquer more. This is the kingdom of Media Persia that we've already seen, the leader Darius and then later Cyrus. It's a kingdom made up of Medes and Persians, but the Persians got stronger and more powerful, and so the bear is up on one side portraying that. The third kingdom is a leopard with four wings and four heads. And, 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 correspond, and, and by the way, the, 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 uh, the bear repre, uh, corresponds to the silver chest of Nebuchadnezzar's uh, image. And then the leopard that's fast and swift with four wings and even four heads corresponds to the belly and thighs of, the, uh, of, of bronze on, on Nebuchadnezzar's image and perfectly pictures Alexander the Great who swiftly and quickly conquered the world and who had, when he died, his empire was divided up into fours among his four generals that led with him. And then we come to the fourth beast, which is really the focus of this chapter. 
It's dreadful. It's terrifying. It's extremely strong. Large iron teeth. Different from all the beasts before it. And has ten horns, which that's a lot of leaders and a lot of kingdoms going together. And then the strange little horn that comes up and plucks out three other of the horns. The fourth beast, please understand, is not called by any animal in the animal kingdom. It's too horrible. It's too different to compare to any created animal. I think it also points to, in the future as we will see, satanic influence on this final kingdom when it appears in the future. The fourth beast pictures Rome and its brutal emperors of the past, but the ten horns and the little horn picture the future empire of the Antichrist that has yet to come. And so this corresponds to the ten toes that were mixed of iron and clay. Remember that in, in the image? And so you got the ten horns, the ten toes that are now ten horns, but you have new revelation here of a little horn that comes later, which portrays the Antichrist, which is still future to us. So, what's the big deal about this? Well, to thrive in the last days, we need to see history's advance from God's perspective, not man's. Don't watch the news. Don't wa read the history books. Don't watch the unfolding of current events from the perspective of the big, glorious image that says, man can handle this apart from God. Don't be tempted. Don't be fooled into the humanism, the secularism, the materialism, the worship of military might. Human wisdom, education, economy, ecology. These are all human efforts to try to, to, to put a happy, smiling face on the corrupt, cursed depravity of our planet. And so I want you to see, first of all, that God's perspective on the advance of history is much more frightening than man's. All right? Much more frightening. You're like, Chris, did you not watch the news this past week? That was scary. Indeed it was. But you haven't seen it from God's perspective yet. Are you with me? Don't be fooled by American leaders, Russian leaders, Scandinavian leaders, human leaders, who are going to put, or preachers, teachers, men, women, who will put a happy face on this and say, you know what, I'm large and in charge of this. I can control this. I can, I can do this. Daniel was alarmed and as scared as Nebuchadnezzar, but for a different reason. He could see man's depravity for what it is. A horrible distortion of the image of God that is beastly, brutal, and destined for God's eternal wrath. We need to see the world and our neighbors and our people as what they are. People in desperate need for a rescue from a sovereign God. Amen? And God's perspective on history's destiny is much more revealing than man's. I think some of us need to turn off our news and open our Bibles more. We need to quit listening to the talking heads and, and, and the political know-it-alls, and start reading God's Word, because it's so much more revealing. Amen? It's more revealing. Daniel 7 is this pivot in the entire book. This is the last chapter, as I said, to be written in Aramaic. This is God's last warning to the world. You think you are mighty in your humanism. You, are, you think you are mighty apart from God, but you are beasts. You are ravenous beasts that I will rise up and I will destroy. And this is the first dream, as I said, given to a believer. It's God's first revelation to us what will finally happen to God's people in the end. And I guarantee you, as you read the history books of men and you watch the unfolding of cable news, no one's going to tell you the outcome is the kingdom of God. That you've got to find from God's Word. Amen? And that's what we get. It's good stuff. It's good stuff. In fact, look at Daniel 7. Look at 15 through 18. 15 through 18 
He says, look, this freaks me out in verse 15. And so in 16, he seeks heavenly insight, heavenly wisdom. And in 17 and 18, this complex chapter is summarized so, so easily. These grace beasts, which are four in number, are four kings which will arise from the earth. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. And God's people say, Amen. Amen. So again and again in this chapter, again, the focus, it's really kind of wonderful because it's kind of rare in Scripture. The focus is on us. The focus is we get to receive the kingdom. We win in the end. Turn to your neighbor. We win in the end. Say that. That's good. We need to be saying that to one another. Now, to thrive in the last days, though, we need to see something else about history's destiny. And that is, number two, we need to see the Antichrist for what he really is. Not who, but what he really is. Because here's the thing about the Antichrist. If you want a big crowd, tell them you're going to talk about the Antichrist. At least a big crowd of Christians, anyway. Actually, even unbelievers, they love talking about this stuff. Everyone wants to know what? Who is the Antichrist? But the Bible never tells us. In fact, you can go to websites. World, five world leaders who were accused of being the Antichrist. It was great. It was great. Okay? The seven most popular contenders for the title Antichrist. I'll let you search that. Okay? I'll just tell you about my lifetime. Okay? Hard to believe. But good old President Reagan was accused of being the Antichrist. Why? The mark of the Antichrist is 666, and his name is Ronald Wilson Reagan. 666 in those letters. Are you convinced? Hey, I'm, I'm not making this stuff up. Uh, also in my lifetime, good old Mikhail Gorbachev with his poor mark on his forehead, right? Uh, his birthmark on his forehead. You know, the, you know he's gonna, the, the Antichrist is going to put marks on people's foreheads and hands. I, you know, you can't make this stuff up, okay? This is what happens when Christians spend not enough time in the Bible, right? And then popes have always been easy targets for potential antichrists. Since there's an overlap with the Roman Empire and the city of Rome and the city of Seven Hills in the book of Revelation. And of course, any American president that you didn't vote for becomes an easy target. So you can take your pick. I mean, if Reagan can be a potential antichrist, certainly anyone we've had recently can be, okay? So you can pick Clinton, Obama, or Trump. But God doesn't want us to see who the antichrist is. Instead, he wants to see what he is like. Why? Because if you focus on what he's like, You'll always be able to see him whenever he shows up. But more importantly, as our church teaches, we will be raptured before his appearance. But what's more important to know about what he's like is so that you can discern his spirit, which is already active in the world and even in churches. Are you with me? We get so worried about who he's going to be, which technically is a church, we're not even going to encounter him on this planet, and we're totally ignorant of the spirit of the Antichrist that is very prevalent and can even be tempting to us in this church. God wants us to know what the Antichrist is like, so we'll recognize his spirit now and his presence in the future if need be. Now, as you move through this passage, you see here's just some of the things that he's like. You, you, you would have to go to 2 Thessalonians 2. You'd have to go to the book of Revelation. There's a whole list of things that he is like. But for this passage, he's little but powerful. I think this focuses on how one man is going to have a global influence and destruction on this planet. Because in verse 8, it says he's little, but in verse 20, he's larger in appearance than any of the others. He's a man that, whose eyes possess much win, uh, insight. He's going to be convincing. He's going to be intelligent. He's going to be perceptive. He's going to be deceiving. But most of all, he's going to have a big mouth. Now you say, I, that, you know, don't think about anybody right now. But he has a big mouth that boasts great blasphemies against the Most High God. 
He is called Antichrist for a reason. He is against Christ, he's against the true God, and he's against the people of Israel and God's future promises for them. He's different from any other ruler in history. He's connected, he's a man, and yet I think the difference is because he's going to be satanically possessed and directed and controlled. He wages war directly against God's saints and seeks to utterly destroy them and wipe them off the face of the earth. In fact, he comes to the point of nearly overpowering them and he seeks to wear them down. Boy, I tell you, that's what the spirit of the Antichrist is doing to faithful believers in this time, in this day. He's trying to wear us down, wear us down, and wipe us out. He attempts to change the times and the laws. He's going against God's creation order. He's trying to change what worship is, particularly the worship of Israel. His reign of terror in this passage will last three and a half years. That's the second half of the tribulation, particularly in the book of Revelation. He will, but the good news is this man is predestined to fall. He is utterly defeated by the end, by the judgment of the Ancient of Days. So what does, what does God really want us to see about this? So let me give you three things. First of all, the reign of the Antichrist is future. This describes no person in the past. It describes no person in the present as of yet. It is future. It is during the seven-year tribulation that's recounted in the book of Revelation. It is a future reign of a real man with satanic possession and backing. Second thing that you want to remember is the spirit of the Antichrist is present today. It's present and it's dead set on deceiving God's people. I wish I had the time to take you through 1 John, because 1 John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 4, 2 John keeps talking about there is an Antichrist coming, but the spirit of the Antichrist is among us today. And listen, listen to me. If the spirit of the Antichrist was among churches that were planted and, in, and mentored by the Apostle John, then let me tell you, the spirit of the Antichrist is at work in this church as well. And if we don't understand what that spirit is, and if we don't stay in the book, and if we don't stay aligned with the Holy Spirit, and if we don't maintain our unity as the saints in this church, then we are going to get wiped out, we're going to get divided, and we're going to get deceived, and we're going to allow sin and corruption to creep into our lives and our mindsets, and that's exactly what the spirit of the Antichrist wants to do. You say, that sounds pretty scary, Chris, I'm getting worried. Number three, the defeat of the Antichrist is certain. The defeat of the Antichrist, greater, in fact, in one of these passages, in 1 John, where John talks about the spirit of the Antichrist, he says, you don't have anything to worry about because greater is, you, is he who dwells in you than he that is in the world. And he says, as long as my, God's word abides in you, you are safe and you are secure. Well, to be convinced of the Antichrist's certain defeat, we need to, number three, see the Ancient of Days for who he really is. We need to see the Ancient of Days. And we see the Ancient of Days, most of all, in verses 9 and 10. What a wonderful, glorious revelation. And here's what I want you to understand about the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days is the eternal God whose heavenly court will forever judge in favor of God's people. Now, how many of you have ever had a driving ticket or had to go to court? Well, don't raise your hands, but, but you know, how many of you ever been? I, I tell you, there's, it, it, when you, I went once, and it put the fear of God into me, and I never want to go again. I represented myself without a, an advocate. That was stupid. And let me tell you, as we're going to see in this thing, Hey, it was a parking ticket. I did not deserve it. But I got brutalized because I had no one to defend me. And you know what? If we go before the Ancient of Days, if we go before the Heavenly Court 
and we don't have an advocate, we're going to lose. And it's going to be brutal, and it means eternal judgment. So the Ancient of Days is the eternal God. That's what Ancient of Days means. It means He is eternal. It's only used in this chapter in the entire book of the Bible. Kind of interesting. The Ancient of Days is the eternal God whose heavenly court... Now, you know, it's fearful to go into court because you don't know how the judge is going to decide. But let's say you, every time you went into court, you knew He was going to judge in your favor. That's good news. And this eternal judge, this eternal king, is going to judge in, the, in favor of his people every time. Isn't that a beautiful thought? Isn't that a beautiful thought? It is if we're being brought before courts and judges and kings and thrown into prison. It's good to know that the real judge will rule in our favor. So here's what it means. Number one, he is the eternal king who is large and in charge of whatever he does. He sits on his throne. His hair is white with wisdom. His robes are white with holy perfection. His throne is burning with fire that pictures eternal wrath poured out on all who rebel and attack his people. His throne is a fiery chariot because when he sits, he's going to war on behalf of God's people. His throne is the internal source of a river of fiery judgment. His throne is surrounded by thousands of his servants who reign with him for all of eternity. This is the eternal king who is large and in charge of whatever he does. Secondly, he's the eternal judge who will rule in the favor of his people and against the Antichrist. He sits, and it says in verse 10, he holds court. The court sat and the books were open. Of course, we would go to Revelation uh, 20 where we see the great white throne judgment and the books are opened and we see those books are open and the books are the book of life and the book of men's deeds, men's and women's deeds. And if your name is not in the book of life, if your sins aren't covered by the blood of Jesus, if you haven't turned from your sins to trust Jesus Christ, then you're not in the book of life and you, the books will record every thought, every word, and every deed. I just recently heard a pastor that mocked that concept. But it's real. And if we don't have Jesus Christ, we're going to face this judge and every single thing we have ever done will be reviewed and will be judged. And all will fall short of the glory of God. And all will earn what they deserve, and that is the wrath of God poured out by this just judge. He pours his fiery wrath out. Look at Daniel 7, 11 through 12. I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking, I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to burning fire. That's the lake of fire, the second death. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them. The nations will extend for a thousand years in Christ's millennial kingdom. And then at the end, if they don't turn to Christ, they will be judged with the devil the Antichrist, and the false prophet. Wow. You could go through this chapter and just look. Verse 18, verse 22, verse 27. The kingdom is given to the saints. The kingdom is given to the saints. The kingdom is given to the saints. Our eternal judge and king, the Ancient of Days, is wise enough to know right from wrong. He's pure enough to choose what is right. And he's strong enough to enforce his judgments. We win in the end. Amen? Now, on this Palm Sunday, we need to see one last person. And that's number four. We need to see the avenger for who he really is. We need to see the avenger. And due to time, I can just read for you. Look at verses 13 and 14. They're dropped in here. There's not a lot of explanation. You've got to trace it through Scripture. But here's what he says, I kept looking, 
you got to keep looking. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, that's the glory of God, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So here it is, the ultimate avenger of God's people. You may like the comic books. This is even better, right? This is the ultimate avenger. Of God's people is a man like us, but he comes down from heaven. Who do you think that is? Who do you think that is? He comes down from heaven to reign over a kingdom filled with people from every ethnic group, every nation, and every language. Amen? I'm telling you, church, we have the answer to the world's race issues, ethnic issues, every issue. And it's in the man. The God-man, Jesus Christ. Now, who is the ultimate avenger? Oh, I wish I had time, but I can't. But I would direct you to the Gospels, where over and over, Jesus' favorite word, favorite description of himself, was the Son of Man. And the reason that is, is because up to this passage, if you read the whole Old Testament up to this passage, Son of Man always refers to human beings in contrast to God. But suddenly here, in this verse, in two little verses, you have a one who is like a Son of Man, and yet he's coming with the very glory of God and receiving worship from every tribe, nation, and tongue. That can't be a man, just a man. It's a God-man. And so Jesus takes on the humanity and comes and dies as a servant king on the cross of this Palm Sunday that we remember. And yet he raises because he is God. And he ascends to the right hand of God. And he sits at the right hand of the Father this morning, reigning and ruling amidst the glory. And one day, one day, he's returning. Amen? And he is returning in that glory to reign and to rule and to avenge every martyr, to avenge every persecution, to avenge the saints of God's people. And so who is he? Who is He? Who is God's ultimate avenger? It's the Lord Jesus Christ who was raised, is reigning, and will one day return with His kingdom. Who receives the kingdom of God? I think it's very interesting. In this passage, it's the saints, it's the saints, it's the saints. And then all of a sudden, wait, the Son of Man. So who is it? Well, the answer is this. It's the Son of Man. It's Jesus Christ and all those who are not ashamed to identify with Him and endure the suffering that He suffered, endure the persecution that He suffered, and to even, if need be, give our lives like He gave His life. Listen to Luke 12, 8-9. Jesus is speaking. I say to you, everyone who confesses Me before men the Son of Man will confess Him also before the angels of God. But he who denies Me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Now, I appreciate your patience. Let's look at these four lessons. I've written them out for you. I hope that this very fast and very quick overview of this most important of chapters will help you to keep looking to the end. And please look upward and look forward, because here it is. When it looks like proud men rule the world like ravenous beasts without any restraint, and let me tell you, that looks like our future, does it not? Keep looking to the eternal God who is large and in charge. God, the th His throne's not shaken. 
He's not surprised. You've got to look upward. Secondly, when it looks like history is rushing towards a destructive destiny, keep looking forward. But listen, because it will get worse before it gets better, but it will get better. So anybody that tells you history's getting better and better, say no. It's going to get worse. This kingdom, the, the, the most deadly, the most terrifying ruler has yet to show up. And it's only going to get worse, but it will get better. Here's Paul's discipleship advice. Hey, heard you just got saved. Here's my discipleship advice for you. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. That's what the point is. Number three, when it looks like God's people are being wiped off the face of the earth, keep looking to the eternal judge who is about to hold court and will rule in our favor. Amen? Hey, listen. Unjust rulings, unjust laws, unjust imprisonments, unjust fines are headed our way. And we need to look to the eternal judge who will rule in the end in our favor. And then finally, when it looks like the ultimate avenger will never return, keep looking for the Son of Man who has already come once to save, but He's coming again with His kingdom to avenge His people. Marvel at His majesty, the ultimate avenger. Listen, if you want to keep thriving in what's going to come in ahead, then you must keep seeing what God sees until the avenger comes. Let's bow our heads. And as you bow your heads, I don't want you to get distracted. I want you to bow your heart. Because we need to apply what we've heard today. And first and foremost, with your heart bowed, Make sure that you've crossed that line from unbelief to belief. Make sure that you've completely trusted in and identified with the Son of Man. Bear His shame. Identify with Him by a profession of faith, public baptism, identifying through membership with this local church. Don't be too proud to bend the knee and call on Him for salvation this morning. And second, if you've already trusted Him, don't lose heart, church. Don't abandon your faith. And as we pray and as they sing, don't be fearful, so fearful that you fail to persevere in your faith. Don't be so discouraged you forget to keep looking to Him and keep looking to His Word. And don't get distracted by technology and the busyness of modern life that we fail to look into His Word for encouragement. Father, I pray, prepare our hearts. Let us respond to You and do the work that only You can do. Let's do business with God.